This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. National parks are often in extreme places, high mountains, deep valleys, and it makes them particularly vulnerable to climate change. That's what we heard Wednesday from the director of the National Park Service. Today, what that looks like at Rocky Mountain National Park, one of the most visited in the country. In a little bit, CPR's environment reporter Grace Hood meets up with a woman who studies lakes at Rocky, which are warming. First, I talk with ecologist Paul McLaughlin, who oversees research at the park. Paul, thank you for being with us. Hey, it's great to be here. You have worked at Rocky, I understand, for more than a decade. What changes have you noticed that you think are due to climate change? In general, we're seeing an earlier snowmelt. Also noticing, of course, a lot of people coming to the park will notice the bark beetle impacts through much of the park. They're able to see the the tree mortality associated with that. And even though those bark beetles are part of the natural environment here at the park, uh, because of some of the effects of climate change, the severity of those bark beetle attacks has been increased. Let's uh, address those individually. So the melt earlier, what consequences does that have? So if you think about it, if the snow is melting earlier in the season, uh, the water levels are rising earlier in the season, and then later on in the season, things tend to dry out and the creeks run low, the wetlands are drier, and this has an impact, of course, on aquatic species like fish, especially if the water becomes dangerously warm for the fish. And it also has an impact on all those species that depend on water and wetlands, And then even downstream, it can have an impact on agricultural users and urban users uh, down on the front range. And then to the bark beetles, what is the effect? I guess that it's just more dead trees in the park. More more dead trees in the park. Over the last uh, 15 years or so, we saw about 90% of the, the area that holds pines in the park being impacted by bark beetle. And even though that's less than 20% of the total trees, still if you're traveling around the park and looking out at the landscape, you're noticing the presence of a lot of dead trees on the landscape. Does that raise the risk that one of them will fall and hurt someone? I mean, I'm thinking of this very practically for visitors. Well, that's a very good point. And, you know, around our developed areas, actually, we've controlled the bark beetles by using herbicides on some of the highest value trees to prevent them being impacted by the beetles. We've also identified trees that were impacted by the beetles and removed those trees to avoid hazards in the developed areas. But in the backcountry of the park, it's not practical for us to remove all the hazards. So that's been more a case of education for the public, of making people aware that, you know, those trees are potentially um, dead and can fall, particularly in a wind event. And so people, when they do go hiking out in the park on a windy day, would be thinking, hmm, is this a wise thing to do? So public education is an important part of the, the formula. Yeah, fascinating. And not necessarily an impact of climate change you'd expect. So what is an example of adaptive management? So this, this is really one of the key phrases that you use to describe the future of Rocky Mountain National Park, that there are trends underway and you've got to adapt to them as you manage. Uh, what, is, what does that well, mean? Yeah. Well, actually, one example I would give is uh, managing exotic plants in the park. You've probably heard of cheatgrass, uh, Bromus tectorum, which is a grass that is an annual and it grows very quickly in the early part of the season. And it's very successful at outcompeting some of the native grasses in the park. 
So using early detection to notice when there's outbreaks of cheatgrass and ideally controlling those outbreaks while they're small. And then mapping the areas that are impacted by the cheatgrass so that we can monitor over time how that's expanding and make sure that we have the resources to effectively control the cheatgrass. So cheatgrass likes the warmer temperatures, eh? It's more successful at competing under the warmer temperature regime. And cheatgrass has an interesting relationship with fire in the sense that because it browns out earlier in the season, Mm. it can actually promote the growth of fires. And then when a fire does burn, cheatgrass tends to be one of the species that's very good at competing on the disturbed soil after a fire. So in a sense, fire and cheatgrass work together to support each other. Yeah. Is what you're learning at Rocky about cheatgrass, for example, uh, might that benefit other land managers, be, be they you know, public or private? Yes, that, that's an important uh, benefit of doing the work in the park, and that's something we work with scientists in order to share that information with mm-hmm. all who could benefit. Yeah, and that could be other agencies, the Forest Service, for instance, or gosh, I don't know, ranchers, right? Uh-huh, that can be private landowners as well. And we work very closely with our gateway communities on a number of these issues. Hmm. I think what I'm hearing from you, in a way, is that um, Rocky Mountain National Park, and and maybe other national parks as well, are climate change laboratories, Paul. I mean, a chance to work on systems that could really benefit larger swaths of land. Would you say that? Well, I think that's one of our blessings, is that we're a high-visibility location where a lot of people have interest. We have a lot of scientists who like to come to the parks and study climate change, among other topics. And we also have the public that often feels very passionate about their national parks. And so, you know, this is a real opportunity for us to share the impacts of climate change and hopefully motivate the public to affect changes in their own lives that can reduce the impacts of climate change. It's funny, climate change has been so politicized How do you, as a national park, um, deliver the message in that kind of climate? (laughs) Well, certainly we want to respect people's points of view and our interpretive programs. Even 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 if they're wrong, huh? Well, it's important at least to listen to other points of view. But what we try to do is present the facts. We try to present tangible examples of how The science indicates that climate change is affecting the environment here in Rocky Mountain National Park. And then people are entitled to come to their own conclusions. What do you think Rocky will look like for visitors in 20 years, say? Well, I think an important part of the message for me would be that nature is is amazingly resilient. And here at Rocky Mountain National Park, I'm confident that this will still be a marvelous and beautiful place for people to come and visit and find inspiration. But I do feel like we're going to be able to notice some significant changes in the visible landscape, in the forest structure that we see, in the clarity of the water of our lakes. We may see more algae blooms in those lakes. And certainly we'll begin to see changes in the assemblages of plants and animals that we find here in the park. In just the last few years, we've begun to see wild turkeys coming up from the foothills into the park, and it appears to be doing that in response to the warmer temperatures that we're experiencing at higher elevations. Our concern, of course, would be that species like pica that live at the highest elevation and have a low tolerance for 
warming temperatures will become more vulnerable over time and might be harder to find in the park. And then one wonders what turkeys eat and whether that's going to have an effect on the ecosystem. Well, indeed, each new uh, animal that comes into the system is going to have an effect on the entire web. Thanks so much for talking to us. Pleasure talking to you, Ryan. Paul McLaughlin is an ecologist at Rocky Mountain National Park. This month, the Park Service turns 100, and we're investigating how Colorado's parks are affected by climate change. McLaughlin mentioned algae blooms in alpine lakes. CPR's environment reporter Grace Hood went to Rocky to investigate that, and her story is coming up after a break on Colorado Matters. You are back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Scientists want to solve a mystery at Rocky Mountain National Park. Algae started to show up on the banks of some alpine lakes there in 2010. Since then, researchers have tried to find out if it's connected to climate change. CPR's environment reporter Grace Hood profiles one of these sleuths. Nature throws a lot of curveballs when you're 10,000 feet above sea level. So imagine how tough you need to be to collect water samples every week in the same spot for 35 years. There's a lot of obstacles, snowdrifts, poor visibility, rain, sleet. There's never a bad day up here, even when the weather is terrible and you're cold. And you never get tired because it's always different. Researcher Jill Barron oversees the Lockvale Watershed Project. It's a system of two glaciers, lakes, and streams. Barron set up instruments to measure weather and stream flow years ago. Today, she and her research team face 25-mile-per-hour winds as they hike up to what they call the lock. Back in 1982, when Barron first started, she says climate change wasn't front and center. This is acid rain. And I think the sheer excitement of discovery got a lot of people into studying acid rain. But instead of acid rain, she found nitrogen was falling out of the sky into the park. It was causing changes to the ecosystem. Over the decades, she's become a small but mighty character in the ecology world. At five foot one, she's chosen a branch of science that's physically demanding. It takes a lot of work to collect field samples every week. She's even enlisted her two kids. Through it all, she's become an accomplished public speaker on climate change. Along the way, she's had her share of hecklers, climate change deniers. It's really easy, I think, to silence these deniers just by showing them the trends we've seen. Climate change headline readers may already know about melting glaciers and bleaching coral reefs. But the love of Barron's life, lakes, doesn't get much media play. It's kind of like the neglected stepchild of the climate change world. Barron says there's reason to pay attention, though. Lockvale Watershed contributed data to a 2015 scientific paper on global lakes and climate change. It found lakes are warming faster compared to air or ocean temperatures. When you warm the water, it makes it easier for algae and bacteria to take up nutrients. So you get more nutrient cycling, you get more productivity. And that can create more algae. The paper projected a 20% boost in lake algae around the globe in the next century. Hey, we are scrambling over snow. Figured there would be some snow up here. Uh, I just fell. No one else has fallen. Welcome to Lockvale. Algae has also come to Lockvale. 
Barron and her research team first noticed it in 2010. But they aren't ready to completely chalk it up to climate change. They've launched a research project to study what's going on. It's so very important to know whether it's climate change or, honestly, global change, which is the interaction of climate warming with all the other factors that could affect algae. For example, Barron's team has found high concentrations of nitrogen in the park connected to coal-fired power plants and agriculture. Too much of it can act as a fertilizer for some plants and change the ecosystem. Rocky Mountain, along with state and federal agencies, have a plan to reduce it. It's informed by Barron's Lockvale research. Now it's time for sampling. We grab waders and equipment from a big storage container and head out to a spot on the lake. An undergrad research assistant grabs rocks from the frigid lake and gives them to another student to scrub off with metal brushes. Those rocks get washed off with water, and that water gets bottled up and hiked down to a Colorado State University lab. Next, we head to Lockville's weather station and rain collectors. This is the scientific backbone of Lock Vale. Temperature and precipitation trends are vital for posing any scientific questions here. Foot-long pieces of plexiglass hang from a large metal circle. It's a windshield, so rain or snow can fall into a bucket on the ground. That's always the challenge up here, It's just keeping this stuff going. Daniel Bowker is a project manager at Lockvale. Rain and snow are collected weekly, hiked down, and analyzed. A weather station with metal latticework towers in the distance. And, you know, you've got extremes of temperature and melt-freeze and all that kind of thing. Data from here will play a critical role in the algae experiment. Ultimately, Barron says she's hopeful about what she might discover. And if there are more causes than just climate change, that's something park managers can fix. We need to be thinking far ahead about how you conserve these species, how you protect these lakes, how you restore systems so that they're more resilient to the kinds of of climate-related phenomenon we're going to see. For Barron, the holy grail is scientific research that can inform how park managers care for Rocky Mountain in the future. That research is exhausting and time-consuming. It's one reason why Barron says this project is her third child. It's a lifetime of work, but she says it's an investment well worth the effort. I'm Grace Hood, CPR News. Grace's story is part of a long-term reporting project focused on how climate in Colorado is changing. And we want to hear from you. What have you noticed, perhaps in your own backyard? What should we focus on? Head to CPRnews.org and click on the gray box labeled Public Insight Network to share your thinking. Still to come, as a female wrestler, Adeline Gray must wrestle with people's stereotypes. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. In the sport of women's wrestling, Adeline Gray is a star. She graduated from Bear Creek High School in Lakewood and now lives in Colorado Springs. Gray has competed in every world championship since 2011, often landing on top. And soon, Gray makes her Olympic debut in Brazil. CPR's Andrea Dukakis spoke with her while she was training in Spain. This is as we cover Coloradans competing in Rio. Adeline, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. What kinds of reactions do you get when you tell people you're a female wrestler? 
Um, it depends on who I'm really talking to. If I'm talking to other athletes, uh, I usually get that, Hey, that's cool. I'm glad you're, you know, pursuing a dream. If I talk to people who are not athletes, uh, similar to like my, my mom's friends, I think those are the people who I most often kind of shock. And I think they're just expecting something different when they hear that, that I wrestle. When you say people are expecting something different, what do you mean? I think being portrayed as a female wrestler, I think they're expecting me not to look like a, a girl. And uh, when I enter the room and look exactly like my beautiful other sisters who are tall and slender and, you know, uh, look like they could be, you know, Victoria's Secret models, uh, I mean, I think it, it just kind of shocks them that I have long hair. I think it shocks them that I'm wearing makeup and a skirt and, and that I don't look like Helga who <laughs> lifts too many weights and uh, just, you know, had been on steroids her whole life. So. I'm kind of curious what people's visions are when they hear what a female wrestler is. What prompted you to start wrestling as a kid? My dad was a wrestler and he was the youngest of seven boys and he had four daughters. And I think he always envisioned himself um, being a t-ball coach or a football coach or a wrestling coach. And he put me into wrestling and it was something that we got to share and, and had a great father-daughter relationship, having him be in my corner and, and support me and teach me something that he knows and loves. And he's a police officer, a detective in Denver. Um, what was it like for him to be your coach? Um, it might be a little tough to have your dad coaching you. Yeah, and like any sport, I mean, you will run through your struggles with that. But it was amazing. I mean, I got to learn moves from my dad that I use to this day. And at six years old, you're really not learning that high level of things. And, and you're not competing year round or anything super competitive. So I mean, the first few years that my dad was my coach, it was fun. He was teaching me something that was, was entertaining and something that I enjoyed. And so it was him putting me through games and, and wrestling positions that I got to learn and love. And so it was, it was uh, definitely came to a point where we had to kind of adjust things and I had to get a different coach to help me progress in my wrestling. Um, but I had a great time growing up with my, my dad being my coach. And in one article I read, you say he never allowed you to get cauliflower ear, something a lot of wrestlers can get, rugby players. Uh, was he very protective of you? Yeah, I think my parents still really wanted me to be a female. They wanted me to be accepted by social standards of what a pretty female is in our society. And I have three younger sisters who are beautiful women. And my mom and my dad didn't want me to be any different. They didn't want people to look at me different. And so um, they just took some precautionary things to protect me. Uh, things like having me wear my headgear and make sure that I was in, in safe environments in my wrestling room. I want to talk about the sport of wrestling because it can look very primitive with two people dancing and rolling around, getting locked up in each other's arms. What is it like to be engaged like that with another person? Does it feel like you're fighting or what are you thinking about when you're on the mat with the other wrestler? I, to some extent, it is a fight, but it's so much more than that. It's controlled aggression. Um, and so anything that's a hit or anything that is kind of over the top is is calculated. And so it's very similar to um, like a chess game is how I like to re replay it, but just with a lot more activity and aggression to it because you're making one move and they're moving to another position. And so you're constantly just having that mental game. And so it's, uh, it's really awesome. I love it. I love the, 
the closeness of it. I love the fact that you're, you're, you know, as close as you're going to be to somebody is, is when you're wrestling. And so it's just a pretty amazing kind of combat sport that has taught me a lot about, you know, personal space and, and how to invade it and, and just get the points you need to put on the board. You recently were profiled uh, in an ESPN article. It was for ESPN's annual body issue of the magazine. And you say, some people tell you you're too pretty to wrestle. And you hate that, you said. I wonder why it bothers you. Um, I think because they judge that I should be doing a girlier sport. And this is a lot of the most people who say that um, are people who don't know that I'm a professional athlete and then also like coaches who are very traditional. So the older generation of coaches who they say things like you should be wearing a skirt and playing tennis or they'll say like you should be doing a girl sport is kind of what how they say it because wrestling does have some aggression in it that isn't kind of standard for females. You know, females are taught we're not supposed to fight, we're not supposed to get angry and we're not supposed to be, you know, in, in a combat kind of uh, situation. And so many of our social norms kind of fit in with that. And so to have it, it be different, um, I think challenges some of those status quo and, and allows people to kind of change their mind about women and how tough we can truly be on the wrestling mat and off. In the article, you pose naked in some beautiful artistic photos. Uh, what prompted you to do that? You know, I think I had a dream of, of being uh, kind of one of the highlight athletes headed into this Rio Olympic Games, and, and I really didn't get the notoriety from some of the sponsors that I was hoping to. I was kind of hoping to be on a Wheaties box and, you know, be in P&G's athlete and kind of get some of those top sponsors, and they really didn't come knocking at my door. And I am in a, in a non-mainstream sport and in a newer sport. Women's wrestling's only been around since 2004 in the Olympic Games. Um, but I still thought because of the the platform that I've really been speaking on and, and the momentum I've been able to have, I thought I was going to have more. And so at the beginning of this year, when I made my Olympic team, I told my boyfriend, I was like, I just really would love to have a big sponsor approach me. I would love to have, you know, Procter and Gamble. I would love to have Wheaties and I would love to have the ESPN body issue. And then that dream kind of came true. It was awesome. I got the phone call and I just was in shock. I was like, wow, I, I can't believe it's really here. Like this is such an honor. And, and they only pick nine women and to be one of the nine women in the, you know, essentially the world that is going to be presented in this year's ESPN magazine is, is amazing. And it was such an opportunity. So I was hoping for it before it happened. And then when the phone call came in that I, that I got it and we were going to be doing the pictures, it set in and became real. Did you pick up some sponsors like Wheaties? I hope so. I mean, I hope after uh, this exposure and everything, I would love to have some of those highlight sponsors like Visa and, and Wheaties and some of those Olympic sponsors step up and, and support me because I, I think that I'm doing something special out here on the wrestling mat for, for not just female wrestlers and, and for wrestling in general, but for women in, in sports. And I think it's really um, kind of those highlight names right now. You have, you know, the Williams sisters, you have some of those soccer stars. And I think the next name you're going to be hearing is mine, Adeline Gray. Often, I think women are brought up uh, not to say that they're good at something, to be tentative about that. And I wonder if you've had to learn to be confident and, and say that you're great uh, and say that you can do this. 
it's a very interesting transition for sure, because you're supposed to be very confident and believe in yourself, but you're also supposed to be humble and never like openly state anything. And so it definitely is a, a fine line between that. And I think I cross it from time to time, but I know it's what I need to win. And so for me to say that I'm the best girl in the world, then you know, and I also have some backing for it. I've proved it for the last two years. I've been undefeated for two and a half years and, and I'm ready to prove it again. Perhaps one of the reasons you want to get sponsors is that you really have to raise money in order to compete and get to Rio. Uh, as we said, your dad's a police officer and on the website of the Denver Police Protective Association, they posted a fundraising letter from you. Uh, how hard is it to raise money from individuals uh, as opposed to getting a sponsor, a big sponsor? Um, so I am funded by the Olympic Committee and USA Wrestling, and so my expenses to go to Rio and for my my training and traveling are covered, but they're not without sacrifices. I've lived in a dorm room for seven years. I um, you know, am only allowed to go to, on trips that USA Wrestling say are okay, and so it's nice that those things are taken care of, but where the fundraising really comes in is for my family to be there. You know, my dad's been to every world championship that I've entered, but it's all been out of his pocket and he works so hard and works off duty and, and really makes sure that that's his only vacation that he takes a year is to see me go and win and compete and represent our country. What do you think your chances are of winning? You know, I've been the best girl in the world two years in a row now, and um, there's nothing that's going to stand in my way. I just have to stay healthy enough to step on that mat. And I mean, nothing's guaranteed. And the Olympics are about so much more than, than winning. But at the same time, the United States does not have an Olympic gold medalist for women's wrestling. And, and I would love to be that first one for not just me, but also for standing there for all the little American girls that can now dream about something as amazing as that. Adeline, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. I'm excited that I got to catch up. Adeline Gray is a world champion wrestler, and she'll make her Olympic debut in Rio. Gray spoke with CPR's Andrea Dukakis as we cover Coloradans competing in the Rio Games. And we'll be right back to bust a myth that one of America's great art movements was all about machismo. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Men get most of the attention in abstract expressionism, an art movement from the 1940s and 50s known for large, bold paintings. Names like Clifford Still and Jackson Pollock dominate. The Denver Art Museum is showcasing works by women. Curator Gwen Chanzit describes one by Pearl Fine. Lots of texture and color of blue and white and yellow And it's all bound together with some collage. And the collage is not just collage normal paper, but it's iridescent. Chanzit wasn't aware of Fine's work before assembling this show, which features 12 female artists altogether. So why has Pearl Fine not been better known? It's a mystery to me. Her paintings are spectacular. Chanzit says putting the show together was like a treasure hunt, one clue leading to the next. Women of Abstract Expressionism is on view through September 25th. It is the first to display works by these artists at the same time. Chanzit says she got the idea after seeing an exhibition of Abstract Expressionism at the Jewish Museum in New York City. When I went through the show, all the usual suspects were highlighted, but there was a little section that mentioned some artists who I'd never heard of. And, you know, I'm an art historian. I pride myself on knowing this material. 
and I hadn't heard of some of the men of color and some of the women. So on the plane ride home, I began thinking about it, and I was racking my brain. I really never set out to do a woman's show, although right now it's very au courant. I mean, everybody's doing women's shows. But I wanted to see who'd been left out of the canon. And in fact, when I got home and I researched, I realized that there had never been a major exhibition in a museum of the women of abstract expressionism. Remind us what abstract expressionism is. It's largely seen as the first truly, thoroughly American style of art. You know, prior to this time, this is really post-war, really on the heels of World War II, this movement really made the shift in avant-garde art go from Europe to the United States. And there isn't a one particular style. Abstract expressionism is a very personal response to the world. And yes, there were all kinds of new materials, new ways, larger canvases, all kinds of things that were that were different. But you can't really teach somebody how to make an abstract expressionist painting. It really has to do with um, personal responses to the world. And in that way, to bring in women's voices is truly to bring in unique voices, because in, well, in so many ways, these works of art are individual to the artist. Absolutely so. And I would say that we know abstract expressionism through what's been sort of called the heroic paint-splattered man. I mean, this has always (laughs) been seen as a very macho movement. And, of course, we only have to look to Jackson Pollock, to Willem de Kooning, to see where this has come. And now I'm presenting the work of 12 individual women who were there from the beginning. They just haven't had their voices, for the most part, heard. Well, that's critical. They were there from the beginning. In other words, these were not women who who were latecomers. That's true. In general, people think of the women, oh, those women, they were just followers. Mm -hmm. Oh, the women, they only painted small. You know, oh, the women, they were all second generation. There are all these ideas that the women were not really there. But in fact, our paintings are from the 1940s and 1950s for the most part. Let's talk about the painting Bullfight. Uh, This is a large piece by de Kooning, and we're not talking Willem. We're talking about his wife, Elaine. You say, again, this movement was very much about the artist's personal reaction to the world. So how does that show up in this de Kooning work, which you can see for yourself at cprnews.org? I think if you didn't know its title, you'd be hard-pressed to know that it's literally a bullfight. Of course, that's true of abstract expressionism. But um, how is it a representation of the individual? First of all, it's interesting that she didn't sign her name de Kooning or even Elaine de Kooning. She signed her works E-D-E-K. She wanted everybody to know that it was not Willem de Kooning. That's a really uh, wonderful painting. And in fact, one of the things I'm very proud of in putting the exhibition together is that we've now acquired eight new works by women abstract expressionist painters for the Denver Art Museum collection. And that was the first one that I was able to acquire. And it's big. It's bold. It's our signature image. And it's a great painting for Denver as well, because Elaine de Kooning was teaching down in Albuquerque. And she was taken across the border with some friends to go see her first bullfight. She was so fascinated by the spectacle and the color and the energy that she did a whole series of bullfights. So if someone looks at that painting, doesn't know anything about what it might be, 
it's hardly the idea that somebody would, would recognize it as a bullfight. And yet, what I think is kind of nice about many of the women in this exhibition is that they have titled their works. And so when we see the title Bullfight, we know what it is that the artist was responding to. Mm. She's not trying to make a pictorial representation of a bullfight. Yeah, you use the word energy. It has a lot of energy. It's extremely vibrant, uh, very diverse colors. I'm seeing yellows and lime greens and dark greens and blacks and deep reds and lighter reds and oranges. And this idea of naming a painting, telling the viewer what it is, is a departure from what a lot of the men were doing, right? Because, you know, right next door at the Clifford Still Museum, he was also an abstract expressionist painter, You'll see a lot of canvases with names like Untitled 4 and... Or PH12. Right, exactly. <laughs> so that, that's a distinction to make. It's an interesting one. And I want to say, by the way, that Clifford Still was a very important teacher on the West Coast to some of the West Coast abstract expressionist women painters. But getting back to this notion of titles, I have noted throughout the exhibition, and you know, I put this uh, checklist together quite a long time ago, And it never really came to me until I saw the listing of the works and the pictures, and I realized how few untitled works there are in this exhibition. And I am very careful not to say the women did this and the men did that, because as soon as you go down that hole, you know, you're lost. But in fact, I think it's one of the things that's kind of special about the paintings of the women, that they seem to be having personal responses to something very specific whether it's an event like a bullfight, a person, it seems that the women are willing to let you in on the thing that influenced them. Now, someone once asked Helen Frankenthaler, why do you title your paintings? And at first she started talking about numbering and all the other things. And eventually she said, because a title has to have a meaning. And I think that's kind of interesting. In fact, we have the great Helen Frankenthaler, Jacob's Ladder. First, as you walk into the main part of the gallery from the Museum of Modern Art, and she talked about, as she was developing the painting, this figure seemed to come to her, and then a ladder, and so, hence, Jacob's Ladder. So it it revealed itself to her. Exactly. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are talking about the women of abstract expressionism, Uh, That's the title of an exhibition that's on at the Denver Art Museum through September 25th. So Judith Godwin is another artist in this show, and she painted a tribute to her friend, the choreographer and dancer herself, Martha Graham. And this image is largely based on a famous dance Graham made called Lamentation. Explain how, how, how that painting captures the movement of a dancer. Judith Godwin came to New York at a very young age, her early 20s, and she came largely to New York because she had met Martha Graham, and she was fascinated by this dancer, choreographer. She said she'd never seen anybody portray movement and dynamism in an abstract way the way Martha Graham had. So Judith comes to New York from Virginia, and she immediately enrolls in the classes of Hans Hoffman, a very, very renowned teacher and his classes were really very, very much attended by the abstract expressionists. And Judith really was paying tribute to her friend, Martha Graham, in this particular painting, and she calls it Lamentation. I also want to tell you another story about Hans Hoffman. 
because we talk about the women and how they were right there in the early days. And Hans Hoffman's quite famous um, statement was to Lee Krasner. And at one point he said, Lee, this painting is so good you wouldn't know it was done by a woman. Ow. So there you have it. Come on. (laughs) (laughs) We just need to remember what a different time it was in the 50s. Women always pushed their men ahead of them. And, um, you know, can you imagine that uh, we have a woman running for president today? It's unthinkable in that time period. Also, the histories of art. Um, I know I grew up with the great big tome by Horst Jansen, The History of Art. Oh, yeah. And until the 1980s, the mid-1980s, there were no women in it. We didn't really think about that. But we need to just remember when we're talking about this time period that the women were there. They just didn't get the same recognition as the men. But do you think that it was just sexism that stood in their way? Or was there something else that leads to them being not as well known today? I think there definitely was sexism, and it wasn't only from the men. I don't think the women either had such a camaraderie between them. Certainly there were some friendships. I don't mean to say there weren't any. But the female gallerists were not inclined to push the women painters either. Oh, interesting. How did you find that out? Oh, there's a few interesting comments uh, by Lee Krasner when um, Betty Parsons, for example, who was a great champion of abstract expressionism, she came to the studio and, you know, essentially said, Krasner, who's Krasner? You know, I'm I'm here for Pollock. And at one point, Pollock uh, wanted Betty Parsons to include Lee Krasner in a show, and supposedly she said something like, I don't show husbands and wives. And she wasn't the only one, um, I want to say. She did show some of these women in her gallery. It's not to say that she didn't. All right. Why don't we go to one more painting? Jay DeFeo is an artist you've included. She's associated, uh, by and large, with the beat movement. And you have a very large piece of hers called Incision. Yes, it comes from the uh, San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, and it's a huge, many hundreds of pounds work of art created by layer upon layer upon layer of pigment. And then at the bottom, there's actually some string that hangs down. And in fact, it took a whole crew of about a dozen people the most of a day to install this work in the Denver Art Museum. And in fact, when you open the crate, there were these wonderful little pillows that would protect the string from not getting caught on any of the pigment. And um, the West Coast was a really interesting place. All the gender discrimination that we hear about in New York didn't exist in San Francisco. Oh, wow. And, you know, some of the stories are such that uh, people like Deborah Remington got together with five painters and poets who just happened to be men, and they formed an of-the-moment gallery called the Six Gallery. And that's the place where Allen Ginsberg did his first public reading of Howell. So there was a lot of excitement going on, a lot of experimentation, and everybody was equal there. And this DeFeo piece, I mean, it looks almost like earth on canvas. I mean, it's very organic. Yes, she even said we were all into mountain climbing and that sort of thing. And so, you know, definitely she's influenced by uh, organic uh, mountains. So incision is definitely about geology. Well, thank you for sharing this history with us. Thank you. Gwen Chanzit curated Women of Abstract Expressionism at the Denver Art Museum. It runs through September 25th. 
When to Stop Driving is in the news after an 81-year-old woman crashed in Denver last month, killing a 14-year-old boy. Her relatives had recently spoken with her about driving, according to a family spokesman. He says they decided it was fine for her to drive under limited circumstances, like across town to see friends. The woman herself died days after the crash. It made us want to revisit this story about a different family from CPR's health reporter John Daly. Harriet Kelly has one word to describe the day she stopped driving. Miserable. It's no fun when you give up driving. I just have to say that. Kelly, who lives in Denver, says she started to notice her eyesight decline over time. She got anxious driving on the highway. So she decided to stop before her kids made the move for her. I wanted to decide myself, so I just told them I'd stop driving on my birthday, my 90th birthday, and I did. Then I was mad at myself because I did it. Mad? Why? Well, because I thought I was still pretty good. (laughs) Kelly is now 94. She says she hasn't had an accident since the 60s and in recent years didn't have any big problems on the road. I think it's just better to make up your own mind than have your kids go through trying to tell you and end up with arguments and threats and everybody gets mad. Her daughter Leslie says she's grateful she and her siblings didn't have to have that tough conversation. Still, Leslie knows it's been tough for her mom. It really cut down on her ability to feel independent, I think. Certainly did. (laughs) Researcher Dr. Emmy Batts is with the University of Colorado School of Medicine. She studies older driver safety. Beth says Kelly is a great example of what she calls planning for a driving retirement. Retirement is something that happens to all of us, right? And maybe we even look forward to it. And you prepare for it. You make financial plans. You think about what you're going to do. There's no upper age limit to stop driving in Colorado. A police officer, a doctor, a family member, or the DMV can request a driving test for an older driver. Beth says studies show if older drivers present a danger, it's mostly to themselves and their passengers. She says fatal crash rates are higher for older drivers because they don't heal as well after a crash. This image of older drivers as a menace to society is really a wrong image that we need to change. Still, Beth says most drivers do outlive their safe driving ability. That's a key fact with Colorado's 65-plus population set to skyrocket by 2030. Nationally until that year, 10,000 more baby boomers will turn 65 each day. With that in mind, Betts and other researchers are studying older drivers and crash risks. B. A. 77-year-old retiree Susan Brookman is part of this study. She takes a series of tests of memory, eyesight, and reaction time. She says she's happy to donate her time if it helps researchers identify warning signs for when someone can no longer drive safely. Do you want to drive so much that you overlook clear signs. Signs like Harriet Kelly noticing her eyesight getting worse. Betts hopes her research helps find ways to better evaluate older drivers and improve communication with their doctors. They don't necessarily have a lot of tools to use, and they don't necessarily get a lot of training. Betts says that's in part because physicians face a lot of competing priorities. She's urging insurance companies to reimburse for comprehensive evaluations, That's rare now, but older drivers can get a discount on their insurance by taking a driver safety class. We didn't have all these four-lane roads. At a senior center in Aurora, Chris Lafredo teaches just such a class. It's through AARP, and there are about 20 senior drivers here. 
She talks about everything from medications to new technologies in cars to strategies for the future. You have to know when to give up your keys. Not a hand goes up when the group is asked if they're ready to talk about that. After the class, retirees Ralph Bungie, who's 72, and his wife Paula, who's 67, say they've joked with their daughter about writing a note she can hand back to them when it's time. The conversation wouldn't be so difficult. (laughs) Doing it would be... We're just not really at a place where we imagine that that decision is going to be made anytime soon. 72-year-old retiree Robert McSherry says he'd need to move closer to public transportation if he didn't have a car. For now, he says, he's in denial that that day is coming. One thinks... Well, that you will live forever. Harriet Kelly says she's made adjustments since she gave up the keys four years ago. You got your sunglasses? Yeah. She now hires a companion to take her on errands and relies on Uber in a pinch. She gets rides from family and friends, though some of them make her nervous. Kelly says, quite frankly, there are... Fewer and fewer people I'll drive with in their 80s, I must say that. As Kelly has discovered, no one was meant to drive forever. I'm John Daly, CPR News. Let's hear more now about options, or the lack of them, for older drivers. CU's Emmy Betts was in John's story there and joined me in the studio. First, we do need to acknowledge we have some unique challenges in the state. Um, The rural areas are much harder to develop the kind of transportation systems that, say, more urban um, states have. Harder to hail a taxi. Sure. Yeah. And so for rural older adults, it's especially difficult. And, and that's a challenge our state faces. Um, the first thing I think we really need is is a more comprehensive strategy around things like transportation options, looking at what's there, what works for older people. Do we need programs to subsidize taxis or, or other things like that? Or do we need brand new programs? Um, I think the answer is not laws requiring, you know, retesting, driver retesting at particular ages. So it's not the, we can't get every 65-year-old back in the car at the DMV. That just, it doesn't make sense from a sort of logistic standpoint. And and also probably most of those 65-year-olds are okay. Thinking about ways to support programs like the comprehensive driving evaluations, which are done by occupational therapists, um, those are programs that can be very useful for older adults. Yeah, occupational therapists can play a role uh, in part in making older drivers better driving. Is that right? Right. So they are, um, there are certified driving specialists who typically are occupational therapists. And they can work with an older driver. They get behind the wheel with them and can identify areas that are problematic. So, you know, you seem to have trouble checking your rearview mirrors. Let's get you a bigger rearview mirror. Or you seem to have trouble with your peripheral vision. Let's talk about how you can compensate for that. I think their goal is really to help older people stay on the road as long as possible. They're not just trying to take away licenses. Are there those occupational therapists in Colorado today who could be hired to do something like that? Yeah, so there are existing programs. I think doctors and family members don't know about them. So one thing is just kind of getting the word out. Uh, the other big challenge, though, is that most of them uh, are not covered by insurance, and they can be up to a couple hundred dollars. Now, you said just a bit earlier that you didn't foresee uh, a program under which everyone who's 65 would get back in the car for a driving test. I can imagine someone 65 going, I'm not even close to needing to stop driving. 65 is a number we often pick because that's when Medicare starts and all kinds of other kind of 
aging-related mm-hmm. things come up. But you may take some people off when right. you say 65. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're, we're, we've talked oh. about older drivers and when they should get off the road as a function of their health. But you also say getting them off the road too early could also affect their health. You're taking away a freedom and you're taking away something that could end up isolating them. So there are really health concerns on both sides, aren't there? Absolutely. And there have been multiple studies now showing that there are potentially negative side effects from stopping driving, including depression, potentially even early death, um, need to go into nursing home, things like that. And so I always say to people, imagine if I told you, you had to stop driving tomorrow. I mean, what would you do, right? You have to have ways to still get to the places that you need to go, that you want to go. And so, you know, we can't just take away people's licenses without giving them alternatives. Thanks for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. Emmy Betts is an associate professor at the CU School of Medicine. She specializes in injury prevention and older drivers. We spoke late last year. That's Colorado Matters for today. You can follow us on Twitter at Colorado Matters and CPR News on Facebook. I'm Ryan Warner.